Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ellie, go upstairs. Your, your cat sounds like Matt when he's losing an argument. <laughs> well, first off, I've never lost an argument. Right. <laughs> I think we're going to have to have an argument about that there, Matt. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I am joined today by my fantastic co-host. First up, the dad jokester extraordinaire, it's Matt Morgan. So Joey, it is very rare that a, that a defibrillator fails. But when it does, nobody is shocked. <laughs> uh, no one is shocked indeed. Uh, next up, the bad jokester extraordinaire <laughs> is Dana Roach. This isn't even a joke. I'm just going to say something nice to my wife. Her and my son are upstairs making me right now mana symbol uh, cookies for my birthday because my birthday this week is on Commander Night. So I'm going to bring oh. cookies to Commander Night that they're making for me right now. So Dana, wholesome. Dana, now I feel really bad about the way that I introduced you. <laughs> As that, you that's should. That's so delightful. I, I, I do. That's that's actually really, really sweet. I love that. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is a deck building website that collects data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, we'd like to give all that data a little more context. What's our topic this week, fellas? Cycles of color fixing lands. That is right. We're going to be going through some of our favorite color fixing land cycles and determining which ones we like, which ones we don't, which ones are more popular, which ones maybe are a little overrated or underrated, when we play some of these color fixing lands, when we maybe won't play these lands, stuff like that. It should be a lot of fun to sort of take a critical look at our mana bases. To be clear, before we actually get started, I do want to note that we actually won't be touching on utility lands this episode. Utility lands, things like Reliquary Tower, for example, which have different abilities that are sort of different from actually fixing your colors. We actually just want to discuss lands that are used for the express purpose of correcting your colors so that you can cast your spells properly. So this will include stuff like fetch lands, because those can go fetch you cards, uh, lands that fix your colors, but not any of the utility lands with like activated or static abilities or something like that. Just a real quick thing uh, to note there. Are you guys ready to talk about some lands? Yes, indeed. You can color me on board. <laughs> then that we shall. So we're just going to be going through some of our favorite lands. And first up, of course, we have to mention one of the most popular types of lands out there. And those are the shock lands, the brooding pools of the world, the goblish shrines, the overgrown tombs, the ones that have two different land types and enter the battlefield tapped unless you pay two life. These are so popular. And for good reason, Ravnica did us all a wonderful service when it printed these lands. I mean, at this point, we almost want to talk about these just as a formality because everyone knows them, everyone plays them. Is there any reason that you guys wouldn't ever play one of these shock lands? Because they're so cool, right? 
I mean, I think the only time I would never play them is if I'm playing a monocolor deck. Well, <laughs> that's that's the only viable reason I can think of. Yeah, thank you. I mean, thank you, Matt. <laughs> they, they go in every deck. I think not only do they go in every deck, they're they're lands that people have access to because both you know a lot of players played during Turn of Ravnica, a lot of players played in the most recent recent Ravnica set. So not only are they fantastic, they're accessible to the average player. Yeah, and, and of course the thing that makes them so wonderful is the fact that they have multiple land types. So something like a fetch land can go and get those, or something like Farseek can also go and fetch those. A Farseek will let you search for an island, a mountain, a swamp, or whatever, and you can grab an island forest, like the breeding pool, or something like that, and it meets multiple things. It's so great. And the really big thing, too, is that they don't sacrifice any tempo. You can let them come in tapped or untapped. Just depends. And the two-life payment is just so minimal. These are really, really wonderful. The only reason that I would say you don't play them is simply if your budget doesn't necessarily allow it. But there are also some budget alternatives to these shock lands that also have dual land types. So now I want to ask you guys about those particular types of color fixing lands. Here we have the battle lands from Battle for Zendikar. For example, Canopy Vista or Sunken Hollow. Those also have both land types, but they enter tapped unless you control two or more basic lands. That's a pretty interesting restriction, and I want to know whether you guys prefer those battle lands or if you prefer the cycling lands, which came from the Amonkhet set. These are lands like Sheltered Thicket. They have basic land types, but they always enter tapped, and they can be cycled from your hand by paying two mana and discarding them to draw a card. If you guys are looking at budget alternatives to the shock lands, are either of these lands going to take your preference? Which one do you think you would play over the other? Dana, let's start with you. Um, I, I run them both. Like I don't think I have a deck where I can run a battle land or a cycling land, the fetchable ones, that is, where I'm not running them. If they can go in a deck, I'm running them. All right, interesting. Matt, are you the same? Do you also play these? Um, I play the battle lands as often as I can. Because more often than not, especially late game, they're they're not a dead draw. They're not going to be something that you lose tempo on. We've we've said you know several times on the podcast. I play as many basics as I can. So more mm. often than not, for me, battle lands are just a straight. They come into play untapped land if I draw them past turn you know th four usually. Um, I don't play a lot of cycling lands though. Those they're fine. I do like that they're never a dead draw. But the fact they always will come into play tapped, that kind of turns me off because at that point, they're kind of a fetchable guild gate almost. Um, Shocklands, obviously, those are the gold standard. Then I would go Battlelands and then Cycling Lands in third place as far as my my personal ranking. Yeah, I mean, th th those are the only lands with Cycling and I, that I run, and I think they're the only lands that always come into play tapped that I do run is, is the cycling lands. I think if I ran more ETB tapped lands, I would be probably less likely to run them, but, but because I tend to avoid lands that come into play tapped, I feel like just having the cyclers as the one cycle or the, or the one land in my deck that does that, particularly when it's fetchable, is worth the trade-off. See, for me, for me, for cycling lands, they're almost not even my third favorite land cycle in general. I, I would rather play a land... I'd rather play the temples, and we'll talk about those in a little bit, over the cycling lands. I, I think I might agree with you there, Matt. I actually pretty frequently don't play either of these lands. I think the only times that I play them are in the uh, the two-colored decks. I don't tend to run these in my three-colored decks. In my three-colored decks, the battle lands uh, from Battle for Zendikar that enter tapped if you have two or more basic lands, I just... I know, Matt, that I need to run more basic lands, but you I do. just, you I, do. I, I, I really do, but I just <laughs> tend to not have enough to make these reliable. Um, and the cycling lands too, I've just found that the tapped thing can be really uh, a, a pretty big hit when I actually prefer my tapped lands in those decks to provide me colors 
all, all three of the colors that I will need in a three or four sure. deck or something like that. The thing, though, that is pretty interesting about these is that you can kind of get around the uh, the tappedness of these lands if you do have those fetch lands, which we will talk about very, very soon. But fetch lands, you might be able to do a bit of a fun sequencing if you have all of these different types of lands available. A fetch land can fetch you not just the shock land, but also maybe one of these lands. And then that can actually be really cool. Like if you were going to have the shock land enter the battlefield tapped anyway, well, why not get a cycling land, which is always going to enter tapped. And so there's utility yeah. to them there that I do really appreciate, but I just also tend, these tend to get budged out for me personally. If I am looking for budget alternatives, I do really like them, but since I do happen to have shocks, I just don't tend to play these battle lands very often. And another thing that I should probably mention here is that I tend to have two color decks that are of enemy colors as opposed to ally colors. So I play a lot of green black, for example. I know, big surprise that Joey plays a lot of Golgari, but battle lands and cycling lands don't exist in Golgari colors. They only exist in True. ally colors. So that might be another reason why I don't play them as often as maybe I should. Well, it, it's also a reason why it's probably why I tend to run them in decks where I can, because there's only one of them in, you know, every other two color deck. And there's only, right. only, you know, a couple, one or two of them in your three color decks. So it's not sucking up as many slots. If there was 10 of these lands, <laughs> 10 of each 20 total, instead of 10 total, where you're running up, you know, more per deck, then that changes things because then they're coming into play tapped, whatever. So I think the rarity makes it easier to run them in decks just because they're not competing with one another for slots. Mm. Sure. And well, and Joey, you touched on a really good point of people, you know, with the fetch lands, uh, a lot of times I will see people fetch out something that they could have entered the battlefield untapped. You know, sometimes if, they, if they're playing an original ABU duel, for example, or the shock lands, they'll fetch up one of those at the end of turn and put into play tapped, whereas either of those two lands could come into play untapped when they need it next turn if they drew it, for example. But if you're not going to use anything with that mana, fetching up the battle lands or the cycling lands if you're playing those actually is a really good level mm -hmm. up play because you're not doing anything because then the next turn, if you drew a battle land instead of a shock land, that battle land for sure would come into play tapped. So that's just some of those little things that if you're fetching out lands at the end of turn with your fetch lands, getting those cycling lands and then untapping that's almost always going to be better than fetching up your your scrubland over you know something else is going to come into play tapped all the time. It's just one of those little corner case scenarios that's going to help you in the long term, and it's not going to give away too much information. But those are the types of little incremental value things that you learn over time that I really like that you pointed out there. Yeah, and that, or also if you're using a spell like Farseek, which goes and fetches the land right. and always makes the land tapped, making sure that you get a land that would enter tapped anyway can be a really right. nice thing there where you're not really sacrificing any value. So I do like these, I just don't personally run them, and I'm really hoping very soon that we get enemy-colored versions of them so that maybe I can play more of these in my Golgari decks, of which I have far too many. <laughs> uh, we've talked a couple of times about fetch lands, and we should probably mention those now too. Fetch lands that allow you to pay one life, tap, sacrifice a land to search for a land of a basic type, but not specifically a basic land. So in other words, they go and fetch the lands that we were just talking about because they have those multiple basic land types. These are just so, so good. They're also very, very expensive, though. So while we can touch on and, you know, we love fetch lands and it's really great for landfall strategies and these are so wonderful. What I think would actually be more productive is for us to talk about alternatives to fetch lands. Because stuff like a Misty Rainforest, that's a really expensive card that just not everyone has access to. And there are a lot of other different types of lands that can, quote, fetch lands from your deck as well to try and fix up your colors. So let's move on to some of those, too. 
For example, there's the slow fetches. These are like fetch lands, but they themselves enter the battlefield tapped. I'm thinking guards like Rocky Tar Pit, Mountain Valley, stuff like that. They can also sacrifice. They don't require a life payment, but they sacrifice to go find a basic land type, and then they put that one into play. What do you guys feel about these slow fetch lands? Are they worth it? Matt, any ideas? I think they're worth it in specific decks because they are a little slow. And one thing we do need to point out is Rocky Tar Pit, for example, it only can get a mountain or a swamp type land. It's not any basic. Um, each mm -hmm. each one has a restriction to two different colors. But I, I like these in landfall heavy decks, and that's about it. The fact that they come into play tapped themselves, for me, is, is a little bit of a downside over the actual fetch lands. So I don't play them too often, but... If you, if you are desperate and you really need mana fixing and color fixing, these are very powerful because if you need white and you have a rocky tar pit, you can go get a sacred foundry, for example, and it gets your mountain basic type, but also gives you access to white. That's why they're so powerful is because you can get off color mana fixing. I just don't think the mirage fetches are worth it over the, the original versions. Dana, how about you? Yeah, I, they've just kind of been outclassed, I think. Like, I think once upon a time, they were much better to run in your decks, but I, I think for the most part, unless you're on a really, really tight budget, I mean, there's just too many alternatives. And, and I think mm -hmm. that's kind of the theme of this conversation to a degree. Um, you know, Commander first was released as a, as a pre-con product in 2012. Um, at that point in time, Rocky Tar Pit, Mountain Valley, et cetera, were probably pretty useful just because there wasn't that many land cycles. In the years since Commander was first released as a product, we've had, you know, eight or ten entirely new dual land cycles added to the canon of things we can choose from when, we, when it comes to build a deck. Um, we got, you know, the, the ones we've already mentioned, we mentioned the battle lands and the cycling lands, we got two full cycles there. But even like if you go back, Innistrad came out after the Commander product. That's where we first got the enemy color lands. We got the gates that you mentioned in Return to Ravnica, the Scrylands and Theros. We got Wedge Trilands and Cons. We got the, the End of the Battlefield tapped Life Lands and Cons. Um, Shadows of Innistrad gave us a cycle. We got a cycle in Kaladesh of enemy fast lands. The Battle Bond lands, which we'll talk about later on. Uh, Modern Horizons gave us a cycle. Um, a few of the fetches we're going to talk about here in another minute. We've just had so many lands added to the game that are playable since Commander's been a product that Wizards had supported that things like Rocky Tar Pit and Mountain Valley, those those slow fetches, I think have just gotten left behind and replaced by better cards. I, I very much agree. Yeah, they've they just been outclassed. I, I would also agree, particularly because if you are, for example, using... In and let, I'll actually, before I make this particular point, playing to your budget is absolutely the thing. Yeah, for sure. That That is very much like the fetch lands are wonderful and they can be really, really great. And there are even some other not quite budget fetch lands that we'll touch on here in a minute. But playing to your budget is the thing that you absolutely should do in this yep. game because that's what you need to do. But I actually, even if you are playing on a budget, I don't think that these slow fetch lands like the mountain valleys and the rocky tarpets, I don't know if they're necessarily worth it because I think they encourage some pretty bad patterns that are going to end up sacrificing uh, game-winning utility in the game if you're using one of these slow fetches that enters the battlefield tapped and then on your next turn you untap it and you sacrifice it and you go and find for example one of your cycling lands from Amonkhet because that has dual types mm -hmm. that is also a land that enters tapped that is two lands entering tapped over the course of a few turns that is actually quite a pretty big hit to your tempo just having one land right. enter battlefield tapped can already yeah. be kind of an iffy thing sometimes because the format is a bit faster than it used to be back in maybe it was 2012 or 2011 when the first commander products were released like 
that's that's two tapped lands. That's a pretty big hit. So that's another thing that I don't really necessarily like them for. I just, yeah, that that's mm-hmm. a really good point. Yeah, having two tapped lands, you may as well at that point play like Dana said the the cons of Tarkir and enter the battlefield tapped, gain one life lands. You that way you only have one tapped land, but you're still fixing your mana. So yeah, I I, I love that point, Joey. That those those slow tapped lands, you you lose two land drops basically. Yeah. So then let's talk about some of the other fetch alternatives. There are, of course, the ones that everyone's familiar with, the Evolving Wilds and the Terramorphic Expanses of the world, which we've proffered plenty of opinions on in the past. For example, Dana has made a really excellent point that I had never considered about how these do fetch, you know, they can find you a basic land, enters tapped, and that's really cool. They do fetch you, you know, some fixing, but they're actually not nearly as good in two-color decks as they first appear, because you get a tapped land that only taps for one color, you know, let's say that I use a Terramorphic Expanse to then go find a Swamp. Well, I could also just play a Golgari Guildgate, and then I would have access to a Swamp, a Black Mana, or a Forest for a Green Mana in my two-color deck. So playing these in a two-color deck just doesn't seem as great when you're getting a tapped land. In three-color decks, I do like them a little bit more, but then there are also tons of other types of fetch lands too. There's Prismatic Vista and Fabled Passage, which came out recently, and again, these are the expensive <laughs> alternatives that we mentioned earlier. <laughs> right. Like, these are nearly $20.00. Don't break your budget on lands. You can play in Evolving Wilds or Terramorphic Expanse for 25 cents instead of paying $25. That is perfectly acceptable and fine. Uh, But they are definitely very interesting because they can give you the ability to get a basic land that isn't always going to be tapped. But then there's also stuff like Ash Barrens, which enters the battlefield untapped, can tap for a colorless mana, or you can basic land cycle it from your hand for one mana to go and find a basic. I really, really like this alternative as well. And then, of course, there's the panoramas, which enter the battlefield untapped, tap for colorless, but you can pay one and tap and sacrifice them to search for one of three basic lands. Of these alternatives to the pricey fetch lands, which do you guys think are necessarily your favorites? Are there any that you enjoy more than others? Are there ones that you would advise not playing? Where are you at with these? Matt, let's start with you. So the panoramas actually are one of my favorite budget land cycles. The fact that they can fix you the mana, but then they're kind of in that same area for me as Blighted Woodland, which is one of my favorite lands around in general, where they comes into play untapped. You can tap it for mana, so you're not missing a land drop. It's not coming into play tapped like the, the Mirage fetches, for example. But then you can fix your colors later, you know, when you're more able to. So you, the fact that it, it kind of checks all those boxes, it's not great at anything, but it's not actively bad either. That's why the panoramas for me are so good because you can use them in ally color. You can use them in any enemy color decks. There's just a lot of use for them. And I, I really appreciate the panoramas. Dana, any preferences on fetch lands for you? Um, I like Ash Barons quite a bit because if you need fixing on the first couple turns, you can get it. And it's just a, you know, evolving wilds worst case. But if it's, you know, turn five or six and you don't care about what color mana you're making, you just play it and use it as a colorless land cycle and it doesn't set you back, doesn't come into play tapped. So I think the utility of of not always having it be tapped makes that a significantly better card than Wilds or Expanse. And I think if I'm playing a three or more color deck, there's a really good chance Ash Barons makes the cut. Uh, I think Vista and Passage are both really good cards too, and I would run them and definitely anything that was three or plus colors again because they have the option to put the land into play untapped that's super super useful um I, panoramas are fine but it's one of those cards that i just don't need um they're I, I would run them if i did but like i just have enough lands in my collection at this point that i just don't need to put one into a deck i don't need to go down that far because i just happen to have lands yeah i'm totally with you there on the panoramas at first when i saw them i didn't like them at all and then eventually I, you know, also was able to play this game for a while and get a pretty decent land collection of my own. But like now that I'm looking at them, you know, 
from afar, I guess, I'm looking back at them and I'm like, you know, I actually probably should have played those more often. And if I didn't have as many lands as I happen to now, I think that these would end right. up making the cut more often than not because the fact that they enter untapped. And that's what makes, pres uh, not, excuse me, not Prismaticus, uh, Ash Barons so important for me personally. I love that land. There are very few decks that I won't play that land because I just love the ability that it has to be optionally untapped later in the game when you don't necessarily need it. And there's one final note that I'd like to make about these particular fetches, um, something that I think also kind of sets the the slow fetches that we talked about earlier, apart from these lands, a really popular card in Commander is Chromatic Lantern, which allows all of your lands to tap for any color of mana. You know what feels really cool? Having a Chromatic Lantern in play, and then playing something like an Evolving Wilds, which can't naturally tap for mana on its own, and then using the Chromatic Lantern to tap the the Evolving Wilds for colored mana. Like, that feels really cool. I really or like that feeling. Or or when the Urborg does that for you, too. Yep. Yeah. Even if you're not playing, yeah, even if you're not playing black... Being able to tap an Evolving Wilds for essentially colorless mana in a Gruel deck, for example, yeah. that's still not a not a bad downside. Yeah, oh, those so those feel so so cool. So a lot of these budget lands, I would say, are really going to fall under the uh, the worth it category in the way that maybe the slow fetches don't necessarily fall. Uh, so that's definitely a really cool thing. But there's also some other sort of slow lands uh, that we might want to touch on. Our next ones are the Tri-Lands. And Dana, you had mentioned these earlier. These enter the battlefield tapped, and they tap for one mana of three different colors. For example, Sandstep Citadel, which will enter the battlefield tapped and can tap for a black, a white, or a green mana. Or Arcane Sanctum, which can tap for a white, a blue, or a black mana. There's, you know, one of each of these for the Shards and the Wedges. We've got ten of these different ones. Where are you guys at with the Tri-Lands? Do you run them very often? Dana, I, I think you had mentioned that you don't always like these tapped lands. Where are you at with these? Um, I Again, I think they're fine, but I probably in most of, not that I play that many three-color decks, but in the three-color decks I do play, I just have, you know, because I'm fortunate enough to have a pretty good land base at my fingertips, I don't need to run them because I have access to enough better lands. Um, so I'm lucky in that regard, but I think they're perfectly solid lands. I think I've seen plenty of people that are running like an Evolving Wilds or something in a three-color deck, and they're not running one of these lands. And it's, Ooh. I mean, functionally, you're losing the same amount of mana, whether it's Wilds go getting you a basic coming into play tapped, or this just coming into play tapped, it's the same thing. And these lands are always going to make you three mana, or three choice, three types of mana, versus whatever you get with Wilds is just going to make you one. So I, I do think they probably don't get played enough in decks where people are either on a budget or just don't have access to more expensive dual lands. Uh, yeah, these are, I think, one of my all-time favorites among lands. These are, are just so, so efficient and very ubiquitous in terms of availability. Like, I absolutely love these, and there are very few times when I won't play these if I have the option, even despite the fact that they enter the battlefield tapped. Like, this is a, a sacrifice that I'm willing to make. I play these in my three-color decks, I play these in my four-color decks, and if I had a five-color deck, I think a really big question that I'd have to ask myself is, do I play all ten? Because that's sure. a lot of tap plans, <laughs> yeah. but it's also yeah. a lot of good fixing. <laughs> yeah, and it, that's a really good way to put it. It's it's kind of premium mana fixing in the three color three plus color decks. I don't I don't hate them entering the battlefield because they're offering you so much mana fixing, especially if you're only playing a three color deck. That checks all the boxes of what you want to be doing. I mean, if you're playing three colors in general, or three or more, I should say. Anything that taps for more than two colors probably needs to be given some serious consideration just because it's helping you so much covering all those bases. Uh, I think Reflecting Pool, Exotic Orchard, Forbidden Orchard, you know, all those types of taps for anything, you know, up to five colors, even like the the mana confluences and those kind of lands 
I think those kind of get overlooked too because they don't distinctly say, oh, here's this color, this color, and this color. It just says any color. So people kind of forget about those a little bit, I think. But those also are kind of premium and they come in and play untapped, but they they help fix three plus colors all at once. Well, yeah, let's take a, a quick moment to talk about those, the uh, sort of the rainbow lands section here in the episode. You mentioned Exotic Orchard, which enters the battlefield untapped, and it can tap for any color of lands that your opponents can produce, which in a really big game like this tends to be nearly all of the colors that you'll end up needing. You mentioned this as a potential for three color fixing, and I totally agree. There have almost been zero games, I would say, where I'm playing this exotic orchard and it doesn't give me all the colors that I need based on the colors available by my opponents. There's also Reflecting Pool, which can enter uh, the battlefield untapped and then it taps for any color among the lands you already control. If you've got a dual land, then this Reflecting Pool is effectively going to be another one, a really great source of color fixing there. And then there's also stuff like the Mana Confluence in the City of Brass, which are unfortunately very expensive now, which is a little sad, but they're also excellent. They cost a life to use, but they give you any color of mana that you need, even outside of your commander's color identity, if you suddenly require it for a random reason. Like, those are really, really <laughs> fantastic as well. These Rainbow Lands are great, and we haven't even touched on Command Tower, but, like, everyone knows what Command Tower is. But yeah, these Rainbow Lands are really corner, big cornerstones of multicolor decks for sure. Yeah, I mean, Felwar Stone is already a very good mana rock in some of these lands, are effectively the same thing. So yeah, I think people overlook them a little bit, but they help. The more colors you're playing, the more helpful they are. Yeah, agreed. There's also a Meteor Crater that taps for any color of a permanent that you control. So the more colors in your deck, the better it tends to be. If you're playing like a five-color deck with a five-color commander, by the time it comes out, it probably taps for any of the five colors you want. Oh, what a curious land. I've never heard of this one. So, enters the battlefield untapped. Tap, choose a color of a permanent you control. Add one mana of that color to your mana pool. That seems really weird. It's a little bit less effective in, like, the five-color decks where the commander is a color with an activated ability. It's not going to do you any good in, like, your Golos deck or anything. But if you're playing, you know, a dragon or something, it's a really solid land. Interesting. I guess my concern would be that if you don't have any colored permanents in play, it doesn't tap for anything at all. And usually I need my lands to tap for mana so that I can play the permanents that have colors uh, to make this thing effective. So it seems kind of really, really risky on this one, but you've had uh, good experiences with it? I've seen it, like, I've only seen it used for the most part. I have a friend that plays it in his Sign of the Ur-Dragon deck, and he also plays it, the same person plays it in a um, Reaper King deck, and in, in part because the commanders in both decks are all colors and he's casting a lot of things along the way. It almost always works really well. Um, I don't know where else I would run it outside of a five-color deck with a commander that was five colors and where you're probably playing a lot of enchantments and things because you're probably not going to keep a one-lander or a two-lander in a five-color deck anyway, so you can probably sculpt your hand smartly enough that it's only ever going to be something you hold on to when you know you're going to drop that, you know, turn one exploration or turn two whatever, so you can consistently have at least it make some color mana. Interesting. Here's a land, though, when we're talking about the rainbow suite of lands, lands that can tap for any color, one of my personal favorites that I will play whenever I get the chance is Path of Ancestry, which is normally associated with tribal decks, but doesn't necessarily have to be. This is a land that we talked about in our Gravy Cards episode a while back. Path of Ancestry enters the battlefield tapped, and then it can tap to add one color of mana of any color in your commander's color identity. So basically all of the stuff that you'll need. And then when that mana is spent to cast a creature spell that shares a creature type with your commander, which does include your commander, then you get to scry one. 
So this is like a triland or like a dual land in some cases. And if you have a five color commander, then it's like a tapped command tower sort of that also occasionally lets you scry every so often. The scry is kind of just nice. It's there. It's kind of cool. But in terms of this versus a Sandstep Citadel, for example, if you're playing an Obzon deck, Technically, this is kind of the better land, even if you don't have the tribal synergies going on. I love this thing. It's a little bit on the pricier side in terms of, you know, availability, uh, but it is still a really cool land that I think could totally be adopted more in terms of the multicolor decks that uh, could use it because it just also fixes your colors. And man, I just, I'm all about that. That's a really cool extra bonus land that you get to play sometime. Yeah, we, d we, we did talk about Path of Ancestry a couple episodes ago on mm -hmm. our, our gravy cards because that that scry one just tapped onto Path of Ancestry. It's entirely like extra, and you don't need it for it to already be good. Like you said, it's it's basically a tapped command tower, which is that in itself is pretty good, especially when you're playing three plus colors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think people don't think about the fact that it's it's worst case scenario an ETB tapped command tower, which is still pretty playable in a lot of decks. Yeah, frankly, yeah. So we've got a few other lands that we need to touch on here, though. Particularly, these are ones that are also probably a little pricey, but man, are they delicious. Dana, you mentioned these earlier. They're the Modern Horizons lands. They enter the battlefield untapped. They can tap for one of two colors, and these are only available in the enemy colors, like green and black or red and white. Uh, they do cost a life every time that you tap them for mana like this, though, which is kind of, you know, not great. They do hurt you to fix your colors. But the cool thing about them is that you can also sacrifice them, pay one mana, tap them, and you get to draw a card by sacrificing these lands. Like, that can be really life-saving if you run out of cards later on in the game. They fix your colors early, they do a pretty insignificant amount of damage to you as well when you need the colors, and then you can cash them in for a card later. I think the only problem with these particular lands is, one, that they're expensive, and two, that we don't have all ten of them yet for a full cycle. Yeah, I mean, I pretty quickly jammed them all into decks that could afford to run them, or that had slots for them, I should say. Um, they're really, really solid, and if we get the other four, I'll be probably trying to find room for those as well. Oh, that's true. Other four, because there was already the one from Future Sight, the green yeah. and white one, the yeah, Horizon, Horizon Canopy. Canopy. Yeah, that's that's a good point, actually. So we have six of these. So yes. that's good. <laughs> Uh, here's a weird question for you guys, though. Like, these are lands that enter the battlefield untapped, which is really great. That's a thing that we definitely like to make sure that we're, uh, you know, keeping up on our tempo. Um, would you play them, though, in a four-color or a five-color deck? Like, I happen to play them in a three-color deck, and I play them in any of the two-color decks that I that I can if I have them. But would you play them in a deck that has a lot of colors? Is the color fixing and the life lost there necessarily worth it compared to something like the Trilands, which can give you access to more colors? So I, I don't think I would... Because the the fact that it costs you one life to use them every single time, it, it, that adds up really quick. We'll talk about the pain lands in a little bit, which at least give you the opportunity to tap for colorless, where these don't. So the fact that this is an early pain land that you are always going to be losing a life to, those early mana drops, especially in four and five color decks, you want to be fixing your, your colors a little bit better. And these, the longer the game goes on, if you use the, you know, if it's your second land drop and you tap it 10 times for mana, you're, you're basically losing a quarter of your life over the course of the game. And that that adds up quite a bit, like over the course of several games, that probably will make a non-zero difference in your win percentage. The, the life loss does matter, but that's not why I wouldn't run them in a five-color deck. I think for me, my, my much larger concern is the lands in a five-color deck have to either tap for three or more colors, mm. or they have to be fetchable so I can perfectly fix what I need to have fixed. And these only tap for two and they're not fetchable. So so that 
would keep me from running those in a probably a four or a five color deck. That's exactly where I'm at too, Dana. Fetchable dual lands is much more important to me if I'm playing a lot of colors, something that I can get out with other effects like a Farseek or with a fetch land, as opposed to just these. Like, And that life loss can add up more particularly. I want the color fixing in a deck of many colors for sure. All right, here's another definitely budget alternative though that I want to touch on, and those are the bounce lands. These are lands also that I probably wouldn't necessarily advocate playing in a four or five color deck, but I have a personal affinity for these. These are lands that also came from the original Ravnica sets. They enter the battlefield tapped, and you must return a land to your hand when they enter the battlefield, but they tap for two mana. So for example, Azorius Chancery taps for a white and a blue mana. Where are you guys at with the bounce lands? These are definitely super budget. Do you play them? I mean, I, I've already noted I have a personal bias. I love these lands, but I want to know if you guys share my uh, my personal verve for these lands too. I, I like them quite a bit. I just don't tend to run them anymore. Um, however, I've seen you know a lot of good plays made with them where somebody will you know bajuka bog one person and the next turn play a bounce land to bring the bajuka bog back to their hand to play that the following turn to hit somebody else. That's or, disgusting, but it's good. Yeah, <laughs> or or even I've, I've seen players bounce their own scry lands, the Theros scry land cycle just to get a scry next turn up, they're desperately trying to find something. So like they're, they do have some added utility. I think it's easy to think of the bounce portion as just a downside and it's not always a downside. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, that's, that's the utility that I'm super after. If you had a cycling land enter the battlefield tapped earlier, a bounce land can put it back into your hand so that you can then cycle that card. Sure, yeah. You can reset the Bajuka bog, like you mentioned. Here's a utility that I really like. Like, yeah, these enter the battlefield tapped and maybe they're a little bit slow, and another thing that sometimes comes up with bounce lands is that if they are your second land drop of the game, like you played your first, let's say you played a planes or something on the first turn, and then second turn you played that Azorius Chancery, and then you had to return the planes to your hand. Well, since you also drew on the first turn in this multiplayer format, you'll now have eight cards in your hand, so you'll have to discard. Usually people see this as a downside. I play graveyard decks, so I literally <laughs> use bounce lands as a discard outlet sometimes to put some really nasty big uh. creature into my graveyard to then reanimate on a later turn. I love bounce lands for all of these reasons. Of course you do. Of, of course. course do. Of course that's the reason. <laughs> uh, I like what Dana said, though. They they do have some nice utility with lands that enter the battlefield and have some sort of utility effect. Uh, there's a popper deck that's all about bounce, bounce lands and, and all that kind of fun stuff, so... One play that I've seen carry over into Commander was somebody would play an Ash Barons, tap it for a colorless mana, play their their bounce lands, bring Ash Barons back, and then use that mana that they floated to then cycle the Ash Barons and fix their color. So there's all sorts of different little corner cases that you can use. But I, I don't run them a whole lot personally. I think I only run uh, Grill Turf in my Omnath deck, which is all about landfall triggers. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I don't really play them a whole lot. Yeah, that's another great thing. The landfall abilities that these can provide too. I I also like them because this was a thing that you might have uh, noticed if you ever played in the original Ravnica that released these. They're almost a source of card advantage because they're practically drawing you an extra land when you play them because they give you another land drop on the next turn. Like that can be, I, I feel really, really safe when I draw a two land hand that contains a bounce land as opposed to a two land hand that doesn't contain one because that's technically three land drops with those. And I, I, I really really like the bounce lands for exactly that reason if we're going to a four or five color deck they definitely won't make the cut for me but in a three color deck i'll still strongly consider them especially if i have any of the synergies that we mentioned earlier about resetting a tri land uh, excuse me not a tri land a scry land or resetting a bajuka bog or allowing me to discard stuff or something like that like there's a lot of utility that is hidden mm-hmm. in these lands and i think it's perfect 
And there's a lot of other lands that we need to get to as well, then some of them that we've even mentioned uh, here previously. But we actually, before we get to all of those fun lands, we do have another segment that we really want to get to, too. And that's challenging some stats. Because there's a lot of data here on Ediatrek, but we don't always agree with it. Sometimes we think that cards are being overplayed. Sometimes we think that cards are being underplayed. So let's really quickly challenge the stats before we get on to the rest of our lands. Dana, let's start with you. What is your challenge this week? My challenge stats is for Hall of the Bandit Lord, specifically in Odric Lunark Marshall decks. Um, Hall of the Bandit Lord is a land that comes into play tapped, and it says pay three life, add one to your mana pool. If that mana was spent on a creature spell, that creature has haste. It's also relatively expensive. It's like $15 now. The reason I'm singling out Odric for this, however, is number one, when you go to the Hall of the Bandit Lord page, Odric doesn't show up on the, command, the, the, the commanders that most frequently play it. And if you go to Odric's commander page, Hall of the Bandit Lord isn't even mentioned on one of the utility lands that you should run in the deck. Here's why it's great in Odric. Hall of the Bandit Lord says, that creature has haste. It doesn't say that creature has haste until end of turn. And the way Odric is written is, at the beginning of each combat, creatures you control gain first strike until end of turn if the creature you control has first strike. The same is true for flying, death touch, haste, etc. So if you use Hall the Bandit Lord to give any creature haste in an Odric deck, it just always has haste for Odric to spread around to every other creature. It now has that word that Odric then shares everywhere. So it's a way in mono-white to give a creature haste and have Odric then give all your creatures haste all the time, as long as that creature's in play. What the jank? This is so cool. I'm even looking up the rulings on the gatherer.wizards.com right now, and indeed it says the effect that grants haste does not wear off at the end of turn. Dana, yep. you're you're a genius. And it's the only one of those lands that's that's worded that way. The 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 Flamekin Village and the um Henward Battlements. Henward Battlements say till end of turn, and they also require red, so they couldn't work in an Odric deck anyway. But yeah, this one specifically in a deck that has Odric, or maybe you're running Matriarch. Uh, whatever the 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 ability sharing green creature was that was in uh, Amaket, majestic Muriark, I think. There, there we go. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's it's a neat land, and that that little kind of corner case thing is really good in some decks, but in Odric especially, it should be in more Odric decks. This is the coolest thing ever. What? That's so. Uh, okay, I like that. Matt, is your challenge of stats as cool as Dana's? I mean, I think it is. I think it's pretty sweet. <laughs> but I, I don't know if you're going to be near as on board. So I'm going to talk about Perforos Bronze-Blooded. That is the new Theros Beyond Death God, the, the version of Perforos that's basically sneak attack in your command zone. So you can pay the, the activation cost, put a red creature or an artifact creature on the battlefield, has haste, and then you sacrifice it at the end of the next end step. So one thing that I think is kind of nifty that you can do to get around that sacrifice at the end of the end step and also abuse any enter the battlefield triggers is a card that is only being played in 19% of the deck so far, and that is Erratic Portal. Erratic ah. Portal is four mana for an artifact. You can pay one and tap it, return target creature to its owner's hand unless its controller pays one mana. So if you're doing that on your own creatures with that trigger on the stack, for example, to make you sacrifice it, you can just activate this, bounce it back to your hand unless you pay one. Well, you don't want to pay the one, you just bounce it back to your hand anyways, and then you can just start everything over again next turn. The fact that this, a lot of the decks so far are playing a lot of Enter the Battlefield effects, uh, very big, very fun things like Ilarg the Razebore even, where you know you can attack and then put something else into play. Uh, there's a lot of really cool mono-red attack triggers and uh, battlefield abilities that you might want to be repeating over and over again. Erratic Portal lets you do that. And one card uh, 
that is also showing up at a high clip that I think is kind of similar to this is Conjurer's Closet. Conjurer's Closet is being played over 50% of decks, and if you want a second copy of that, Erratic Portal is a very, very good alternative. That's really, really cool. I love stuff like that. It lets you rebuy those effects so you can get multiple triggers on Enter the Battlefield effects for the Perforos ability. This is a, a really great pick for Perforos. I'm super into it. This is looking like a spicier and spicier deck every time that I see people brewing with Perforos online. Oh, yeah. I'm really excited to play against this one in person because it seems like just so much fun for a, a mono-red commander to be putting crazy stuff into play. It, it looks really great, and I, I definitely like this pick too. Uh, I'm going to finish up Challenge of Stats now with one of my picks, and this will be a pretty weird pick for a, an episode that's all about color fixing lands, because I'm actually going to be talking about a distinctly colorless land. I'm looking at Wastes, the basic land that taps for colorless, and specifically, I think that this card needs to see more play in Ruin of the Hidden Realm. This is a weird pick, I understand, but go with me on this. And the fact that Wastes is a basic land means that it can be fetched out with effects like a Farhaven Elf or a Cultivator, what have you, stuff like that. Uh, and that is actually really important because Rune loves, you know, flickering. He loves blinking, getting multiple into the battlefield effects with something like a Farhaven Elf. He likes finding a lot of lands. And I do think that he should have at least one Wastes in this deck to go and fetch because of a card that is often played in Rune of the Hidden Realm decks, and that is Eldrazi Displacer. A three mana Eldrazi that can pay two and a colorless land. You can you need that colorless mana to then exile one of your creatures and return it to the battlefield tapped. And actually, I'm misreading that. It can exile any creature and then return it to the battlefield tapped. So you can even blink someone else's creature if it's trying to attack you or something like that. Having the colorless mana to routinely activate this Eldrazi Displacer is really, really important. If you can get multiple activations off of it, it makes it super, super, super good. So I think that Rune of the Hidden Realm would do really well to have at least one waste that can then be fetched out to make sure that you always get a colorless land for this very, very valuable creature. It's done a lot of work in the decks that I've seen it. I think that a waste would be a really good inclusion. Even though it doesn't fix your colors, it is really amazingly good to reliably have a colorless source for the Eldrazi Displacer ability. And is, is that the only kind of fetch fetchable thing that produces colorless mana specifically too? It might be. There are some effects like a Peer's Whim, for example, that can go and find you your reliquary yeah, tower. True. But, mm -hmm. you know, there are plenty of those effects too, but spells are a lot less interesting to rune than creatures. There right. are a lot of creatures that fetch basic lands that he would much rather, you know, be able to see. You can also just totally rely on your reliquary towers or other uh, utility lands like that that tend to produce colorless mana. But having a reliable way to get access to a colorless mana to make sure that you get this particular card so that you can abuse its ability, I think is really important too. So it's kind of an off the wall pick, but Wastes is currently only yeah. showing up in 9.2% of the 900 rune decks. There's 86 decks total that are playing this. And I think that it could stand to be a little bit more because there's some hidden utility to playing a land that intentionally doesn't fix your colors because it actually seeks Secretly does fix your colors for this one very weird but very powerful card. That's I, I don't know. In, in a three-color deck, I don't know if I'd be super on board with that. There's already enough utility lands that have other upside, like you said, like Reliquary Tower. You have Panoramas, you have Ash Barons even. I don't know if I'd be putting a basic that doesn't tap for or doesn't do anything other than tap for colorless mana, especially in a three-color deck. I'm a little skeptical. But if it works for you, then, I mean, do it, I, I guess. At least give it a shot. That's what I'm saying. I've seen this do some really excellent work in the folks that I know who have a blink deck. That Eldrazi Displacer tends to be one of the most powerful cards that they're able to use. And having multiple ways to access its ability is really, really important. Because nothing feels worse than when you get that really powerful Eldrazi Displacer in play, and then you can't activate its ability because of color fixing. So being aware of the times that color fixing maybe is actually to your detriment can also be really important. 
Alrighty, let's get back to those color fixing lands, though. There are a couple more here that we really want to touch on because they're very interesting. And one of another personal favorites of ours, I know, these are going to be the Battle Bond lands. Guys, these are so, so cool. And again, one of the only problems with them is that we don't have a full cycle of 10 yet. The Battle Bond lands enter the battlefield untapped if you have two or more opponents, which is always. <laughs> That's always going to be the Almost. case. There's 1v1 commander, absolutely. But these are so, so good. Like, these are literally tailor-made for our format. And I, I love them. I love them. I will I will always play these. I, I suppose not in the four or five color decks because of the same reasons that we mentioned earlier. We usually want fetchable dual lands in a four or five color deck. But, oh, man, these Battle Bond lands are just so good. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they're fantastic. fantastic. Unless you're playing, you know, a very aggressive deck and you're knocking people out very quickly you're probably going to have the center of the battlefield untapped. I think I've seen maybe once or twice ever that one of these enter the battlefield tapped. Yeah, they go in every two-color deck. They go in every three-color deck I have. I probably wouldn't run them in four or five for the reason Joey mentioned where I want fetchable lands or things that make more than just two colors. But two or three-color decks, they, I, I, they go in every one of those decks I have. And, man, I think we're a long ways away from getting lands that are better that would bump them out. I feel like they're in my two and three color decks and they're not going away anytime in the near future. Yeah, Wizards, if you're listening, we really want the rest of <laughs> yeah. these. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, when is the next Battle Bond set? Because we are dying to get more of these. I, I absolutely adore these. Uh, but on the subject of untapped lands, we also want to touch on pain lands. These enter the battlefield untapped. They tap for colorless naturally, but you can also pay a life to make them tap for one of two colors. So there's cards like a Darkar Wastes, for example, which can, you know, pay a life. You get a white mana or a blue mana. These I was very skeptical on when I first started playing Commander, but now they have also become one of my favorites. The untappedness is really great. The fact that they can fix your colors, but don't necessarily have to hurt you. These are, I guess, a lot better than they look, at least compared to where I was uh, at when I first started playing Commander. Are these lands that you guys also tend to play a lot? Do these show up in your three color decks, for example? Yeah, I love these. I'm a big fan. I, I'm kind of with you also, Joey. I didn't like them at first. Um, when I first started playing Commander years ago, I was like, oh, I don't want to pity life every time I tap this land. Um, you know, maybe it's... It's me being more reckless with my life over the years or just understanding the game <laughs> better too. But yeah, I, I love these two-color decks, three-color decks for sure. I might even run them in more than that. The fact that they tap for colorless is relevant, as you mentioned with Eldrazi Displacer. Sometimes that can mean something. Mm -hmm. And what I've often found is, yes, they ding you for you know one or two or three life, but like by the time turn six rolls around, the vast majority of the time you can just tap it for a colorless and not have to lose any life. Exactly. Yeah, I, I like these, the, like in your rune deck, for example, instead of waste, you can play up to three of these. You can play a few more utility lands and you have your colorless mana pretty consistently for Displacer. So pain lands, I, I think are, I agree, probably a little underrated, if anything. So yeah, they're they're very, very good. The problem that comes up there, and this is another reason why I'm going to sort of reinforce, I'm going to defend myself against your accusations, Matt. <laughs> the reason that I like Wastes is the Wastes is extremely easy to get, whereas some of these pain lands are actually very expensive. Like a Darker Wastes, and I think it's Brushland is the white-green one, which yep. is used in some other modern decks, and that makes it like a 10 and 11 a $15 card or something that like that. That is true. So like having something that like an Evolving Wilds can go fetch you a Wastes to reliably get your, uh, your Eldrazi Displacer to work, like that feels really good as opposed to the like, $15 for a brushland. We don't need that. Like, that's not necessarily worth it. Uh, so Painlands are excellent, though. If they ever do drop in price and you can afford to get these, these are a lot better than they look. We're really, really impressed by them. And they've become staples of the decks that I uh, play that can run them for sure. And now, speaking of staples of the decks that can run them, Matt, let's move on to one of your particular favorite cycles. I know how much you love these. 
I, I do love the temples. So these are lands that enter the battlefield tapped, but you scry one when they do enter the battlefield. And scrying one is basically the, the equivalent to getting half of a card in card advantage. So outside the most cutthroat, you know, super fast, super aggro playgroups, the scry for a, a tapped land is usually going to be worth it, especially if it's your fifth and sixth land drop. That's when you kind of start, you know, you know what you need for the any given game in any given situation. These are fantastic, and since they just got reprinted in Theros Beyond Death and, and the core set, they're a couple bucks each. You should definitely pick these up and, and play them because they're they're so good. I, I love the scrying one of any dual land that has to enter the battlefield tapped. I like these more than the, the cycling lands or anything else. These are probably my favorite dual land cycle. That's interesting that you like them more than the cycling. I do. I, I like setting up my lands. If I have to draw a, a dead land, at least I can make sure that I'm not drawing one again next turn because sometimes you might cycle a, one of the cycling lands and you just draw another land anyways. Now, see, I'm not a fan of these anymore, Ooh. at least. Mm. Um, I don't think they're bad or anything. And if someone tells me they like them a lot, I will not argue with you because I don't necessarily disagree that they're useful. Argue with me, Dana. <laughs> just argue <laughs> but, with well, me. Well, I think this is an example, though, where like, Kind of ironically enough, the fact that they come into play tapped, um, you would think would hurt them in a format like Modern, but there, that scry being able to, you know, find one copy of, you know, four or sometimes eight or 12 cards in your deck that are just going to win you the game next turn is way more useful and way more important than it is in Commander, where people tend to not have that many, like, if I draw this card, I win, um, things going on in their deck. I, I feel like the scry isn't nearly as useful in Commander, and it isn't nearly worth the trade-off of having it come into play tap as it is in other formats where you've got a pretty decent chance with that Scry of finding the thing you need to take your opponent out. So I think it's the Scry is less useful in Commander, and therefore I, I just tend to not want to deal with a land that isn't going to come into play untapped when I need it to. Oh man, no, I'm, I'm with Matt on this one. I like the scry uh, a lot <laughs> like I, i'm not gonna argue like seriously i understand your logic completely I, I i just think play style wise it's not something i just don't want to land to come into play tapped and for me the scry doesn't offset it but if you disagree like seriously i think that's a i won't argue because i totally get the point of view Dana, you're, you're, quit being so milk toast. Uh, disagree with us for real. <laughs> yeah, you're being so argumentative right now, Dana. It's sorry, really sorry. Enough. Anyway, uh, here, here's actually, so our next cycle of lands is one that I'm going to take a bit more of your stance on, Dana. These are the check lands, and these are ones that I actually have sort of lost my liking of over time. Uh, so these enter the battlefield tapped unless you control a land with a basic land type of their corresponding colors. So for example, Rootband Crag enters the battlefield tapped unless you control a mountain or a forest, and then it, of course, can tap for a red or a green mana. Um, and this can include your shock lands, by the way, the cards that have two land types, like it can check for those. That's why we call them check lands. So it doesn't need to be a basic forest. It can check for something like a stomping grounds when it is looking to see whether this land comes in tapped or untapped. I used to play these in a lot of my decks, including three color decks, but they got really unreliable for me. I've had a lot of moments where these have actually entered the battlefield tapped, even in my two color decks, actually, sometimes. Again, maybe I need to play more basics, but I've sort of waned a little bit on my love of the check lands. And so I kind of want to ask where you guys are at with them. I think they, their efficacy really depends on how good your land base is, because the better and and unfortunately more expensive your land base is the better these get if you're running mm. a whole bunch of like original fetch lands they'll let you then go get abur duels or shock lands consistently by the time you get one of these check lands out the odds are really really good you're going to have the basic land type out just by virtue of 
you know, you had your Tropical Island on turn one and turn two, you went and fetched that Tundra, turn three, your check land's good to go. Um, I think when you have that really, really tuned mana base, check lands get even better. And I think the worse your mana base is and the more budget it is, the worse the check lands tend to get, particularly in a three or more color deck where you just can't afford, you know, you can't for the most part be running 10 of each basic and be consistent. See, I, I, I 100% agree that even if your your mana base is 50% tuned, these, are, I feel, are, are probably one of the more consistent of the things that are not guaranteed to come into play tapped. You know, obviously, turn one, turn two, they may not always come into play untapped, but you're also not casting a ton of stuff on turn one and two. Mm. It's when, you know, get to turn three and four and so on. These have more, obviously, a, a higher chance to come into play untapped, but that's also when you don't want to be missing land drops as well. I think these are probably one of my favorites. They're up there with temples as far as non-fetchable lands that help fix your colors because the more basics you're playing, the more reliable these are. But the fact that these will come into play untapped off of, like we said, the the battle lands, the cycling lands, basics, shocks, duels, anything like that. There are so many you know, basic land types that we have now that are dual lands that will help feed the check land. So I really like this cycle, actually. Of, of all the things that are not guaranteed to come into play untapped. For me, actually, I've found the opposite of Joey. These are probably one of the more reliable things because, like I said, if, if your deck or if your mana base is tuned 50%, more than likely this is going to come into play untapped. I feel like you guys are throwing shade at my mana bases here because <laughs> these have been unreliable for me. Just quit being a peasant. That's all we're saying. Wow, rude, <laughs> but fair. Um, no, like I've had plenty of moments where I have a Triland and then I have maybe a Scryland and then I have maybe like the Path of Ancestry and then I get this Checkland and I'm just like, oh, well, this is another tough one. I'm like, oh, that doesn't feel super great. Um, but I've just, I don't know. I, I've had that moment come up more often than I necessarily enjoy. I still play them in my two color decks, but I've, I've softened on them in three color decks because they just feel a lot more unreliable. I don't always get something like one of the Shocklands or even a basic, which in my three color decks, basics tend to be a little shorter on the ground as well because I'm using stuff like pain lands for example or the battle bond lands uh, so it feels like there are less options when i'm looking for other types of lands these lands in particular contradict a lot of the other dual lands that we've talked about so far so that's just a, a thing that i want to make sure that i'm aware of uh with regards to them there are a few more lands that we want to talk about though including some filter lands and when we talk about filter lands there are two different types. There are the ones from the original Odyssey, which are sort of called Signet Lands. They don't tap for mana on their own, but you can pay one of any mana to then produce two mana, sort of just like a Signet. So, for example, Sungrass Prairie can pay one mana and tap it to make a white and a green mana. But then there's also the filter lands from the Lorwyn Shadowmore block. These are things like Flooded Grove or Sunken Ruins. Sunken Ruins, for example, you can pay a blue or a black mana, and then you add either two blue mana, two black mana, or a blue and a black mana. These can also tap for colorless all on their own. When it comes to filter lands, where are you guys at? Dana? I, I like them a lot in two-color decks. I'll run them in any two-color deck I have. Like them way less in a three-color deck just because I've found just personal experience. You get that finicky situation where, like, you really need a white and a blue mana, and you have no white or blue sources out. Therefore, you can't make white or blue mana with this land that just makes white or blue mana, which is super frustrating. Um, so they, they, they fix, but they don't really fix unless your mana is already fixed. And it's way mm -hmm. less of a problem in a two color deck where you just have so many dual land options that odds are you're going to have one of the two colors you need in a three color deck. It, you just get those weird situations early in the game where sometimes you have a land that makes the two colors you need and you can't make it. Matt, how about you? 
I like the Lorwyn cycle a little bit more, just on the, the whole basis that they tap for mana on their own. I, I don't disagree with Dana. I, I, the Odyssey filters, I've never run in a deck. I, I think the fact that they don't tap for mana on their own, it, it sets me off just a little bit. Um, but I also don't play a whole lot of Signets either. So, the, But the filter lands, I like in two-color decks. In three-color decks, they're still justifiable because you, know, you can pay... A, a white mana in this and get double red, for example. So those types of situations are are helpful. I don't these I don't put a premium on this type of land cycle as I do on others. Yeah, I'm with you guys. They've become a little bit more uh, dangerous, I guess, in uh, decks of multiple colors. For a while, I did play. There's a white blue signet land or filter land, the Odyssey filter land um, that I used to play in my Rehan and Ishai deck, for example, because it would reliably give me the mana that I required to play Ishai because that is a white and blue creature. But even then, like after a while, it was good at getting that particular commander out, but it was bad at getting everything else that, that the deck needed. And that just kind of became more of a problem over time. So these are really cool lands, but you have to be very, very uh, judicious about where it is that you actually apply them. They were also really expensive for a long time until the, the Masters 25 right. reprint. They were yeah. almost all over $25-ish. So I think they were lands that people just kind of for a long time, probably didn't pay attention to because they're out of their price range. And even though the price in a lot of them has fallen, I think people might still not think of them just because they they maybe got so used to them being out of their price range that they just don't kind of even consider them anymore. Yeah. Yep. How about the next land cycle that we're going to talk about? Where are you guys at with the vivid lands? They enter tapped, but they have two charge counters. They can tap for a single color of mana on their own, or you can tap and remove a charge counter for any color. Where are you guys at with these? I like them as a budget option. Sure. Yeah. If I was on a budget, I would do it or, or maybe a five color deck that was kind of being aggressive. And I just had to have my five colors really quickly and consistently. Um, other than that, I don't like them very much. The fact that I have to put dice onto my lands, honestly, that alone <laughs> yeah. is enough to make me not play these. <laughs> like, and that sounds so weird, and like I'm sacrificing value just because of a personal aesthetic. Like, I totally get why that's probably not going to be the case for most people. But I just, the like, I don't want to have to be finicky with my lands. It just feels a little awkward, and I don't, I don't like them very much for that reason. Well, um, one I, kind I, of weird, one weird, interesting thing about them, even if both counters are removed, if an opponent has something like. Felwar Stone or like Reflecting Pool that can make mana that an opponent's mm. stuff can make, it can still make mm -hmm. any color even if the counters are gone. The land just has to have the ability to do it even if it can't currently do it. Yeah, that's I mean, it point. also helps then like your your own Reflecting Pool and everything yeah. too though. So, I mean, oh, yeah. it, it, I mean, it's a kind of the, the mana confluence trick. I mean, sure, like it'll backfire if they have the exact same thing, but I mean, I think the the downside is is just as good as the upside, so it kind of washes out. If if you're on a budget, I do like these. Mm -hmm. the, of all, if you need absolute color fixing, the fact that these don't go away like a gemstone mine does when you use up the charge counters, mm. that's nice because it basically it buys you time to con to keep fixing your mana and, and kind of puts that off. So I don't hate them if you're playing on a budget and you, you're playing these. This is an absolutely justifiable inclusion. Yeah. Especially for budget five color decks. Absolutely. That's yes. the point, the yeah. point yep. in particular that I like these. Usually a monocolored tapped land is not going to be the kind of thing that you play in a four or five color deck. But you can definitely play these because you need all those colors. It's By the time that you've used the charge counters on these, you should be set up by that because of the fact that charge counters allowed you to get. So I do like them a whole, a whole lot more there. But I don't generally like dice on my lands because I... Damn weird. Anyway, we've got a couple, uh, just a few more other land cycles that we want to touch on really quick involving the creature lands. 
as well. These are self-animating lands, things like Lumbering Falls, Shambling Vent, uh, Celestial Colonnade, stuff like that. These are lands that can all animate themselves into creatures if you pay a bunch of mana. I just want to touch on these really quick because I kind of immediately give them a thumbs down. Um, I just, I can't remember the last time that I've activated one of these creature lands. Yeah, I can't either. I, and I think the only one I see fairly regularly that gets played is either the, the not part of the cycle one, the um, infect one shows up in a lot of infect decks. Ink moth. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think I, I see fairy conclave in fairy tribal decks. And Celestial Colonnade because it makes a block, it makes a flying blocker or flying attacker is pretty useful. Other than that, it's an expensive card. It's it did Mm -hmm. get reprinted recently, so the it's it's down. But yes, it was fifty bucks forever. Um, So those are really the only ones I see for the most part, particularly in Commander at forty life, having a creature on a land that's you know a two two or something is way less impactful than it might be in a different format. I think the only time I've ever seen too many of these played, I don't play any of them myself, uh, but the red-black one, the elemental that you can pump, you can pay X mana and give it plus X plus O. I saw mm. in a Greven uh, flagship or Predator Captain deck, and that was kind of impressive to see. But other than that, I, I haven't seen too many of them running around now. Yeah, I'd say the two most impressive are probably Hissing Quagmire, the green-black one, because it can animate into a death-touching 2-2 which yeah. can be a nice blocker if you need it. Even I I have I I've I've played his and Quagmire in two different of my green black decks and I've just I I can't recall the last time that I activated it though. So that's kind of the the thing sure. this is a tapped land that isn't always going to be useful. It can be sometimes, but it just rarely ever has been. Um yeah. and then there's also the unblockable uh Demir land, the creeping tar pit. And so you can animate that into it's either a 2/2 or 3/2 that can't be blocked. And I've seen some folks use a 3/2. Yeah, and I've seen some folks use that in a Eureka list for example to guarantee an unblocked creature that can then be ninjutsued out. So that's kind of interesting too. There are definitely applicabilities for each of these, but in general, in terms of tapped lands, I don't always love the self-animating lands very much. They just sort of get a thumbs down from me in general, just because I I can't remember the last time that I've ever activated one of these that I really, really needed it compared to some of the other stuff that I could already be doing. Um, So I'm not sure that they're worth breaking the bank over if you need something like a colonnade. That's not going to be worth it for commander necessarily. And then finally, we want to wrap up with some just good old-fashioned come-into-play tapped lands. You've got your gates, for example, the guild gates are really great but then you've also got just some guards like urborg volcano or elfheim palace they just enter the battlefield tapped and that's about it stone quarry foul orchard there's a whole bunch of these there's also the life gain lands from cons that dana you had mentioned earlier they enter the battlefield tapped and then they can gain you a life there are tons of these different ones and i guess we just want to touch on these as a reminder that you don't need these super powerful crazy expensive lands to get good color fixing on your lands these are perfectly fine budget alternatives and there's nothing wrong with a budget land base yeah particularly in a two-color deck you can absolutely get away with those those tapped lands um that only make two colors the ones that gain you life but it's a perfectly good turn one play most of the time yeah those are going to be the best of the tap lands if you can avoid the herbal volcanoes and the foul orchards of the world i would personally recommend it i do think in a lot of cases a basic is probably going to get you faster where you need to go if you're in a you know multi multi color deck then the tri land is going to be a whole lot better than these i don't think you need all of them but if they're what you have then you should play what you have because Color fixing is important in this game too. So you don't need the expensive lands to make your mana bases work. The point of this episode is not for us to, you know, lavish praise upon the really good lands, but actually for us to remind everyone that you can play whatever you need to play this game. These tapped lands are probably the first to go when you start tuning up your decks, but they're a perfectly fine place to start. Yeah, I, I keep a copy of all of those types of lands, a copy of all the guild, guild gates, etc. 
because when I'm building a new deck and I order a bunch of cards, if cards don't come in yet and I want to go play them, they're fine placeholders. They they get me a feel yes. for the deck, and those are the easily upgradable land spots that you can you know for sure. Okay, well, obviously, you know, Blood Crypt is better than Urborg Volcano. So when the Blood Crypt comes in, then I can just one for one that swap. It's it's a lot of those obvious things. But if you're playtesting a deck and you don't have perfect mana fixing, I like I said, I keep a copy of a lot of these types of lands on hand just so I can at least have the functional you know mana base to see how the deck plays. Yeah. Don't break your budget on lands. They are important. They are the eat your vegetable kind of things of commander. You definitely do want to make sure that your land base is going to get spruced up, you know, to make sure that your deck can function really, really well. But they're also not the most exciting piece of the game. And they're not the kind of things that you should like spend too much money on necessarily. They are really great, but you don't need it necessarily to play a really fun game of commander. Don't break your budget on lands. Definitely play within your budget. Keep in mind, of course, that tapped lands, too many of them, can definitely be a really dangerous proposition. Sometimes a basic is indeed better. But here's another last piece of advice that I'd kind of like to give when it comes to the color fixing lands. And this is one that I'm trying to take to heart. This is the idea that you don't need to be married to cycles of lands. For example, just because you have one filter land in your deck doesn't mean that you need all of them. Just because you have one of the Battlebond lands doesn't mean that you need all of the Battlebond lands that can fit. You don't need to have all of the types of a certain cycle. You don't need all the check lands necessarily. Another important thing to be aware of when it comes to color fixing isn't just having all of these lands, but also being aware of the you know weight of the colors in your deck. There are some dual lands of certain colors that are going to be a bit more important for your deck's particular uh, actual color demands. Just because you have a three-color deck doesn't mean that all three colors are represented equally, for example, within the deck. So it could be useful sometimes to weight the color-fixing lands that you have towards the colors that you need more often. That is a lesson that's really tough for me. I tend to be a bit of a perfectionist. When I have one card that is a member of a cycle, I tend to want all of the other cards (laughs) from that cycle. But that isn't necessarily a thing that you always need to do. So don't be married to cycles of lands. That's a awesome point and actually i i subconsciously i think i did that a little bit before but now that you're saying it like i realize i've done that before um my moldrotha deck is is largely black green and like there's a blue splash obviously and i have a lot of the black green lands but i don't have a lot of the green blue lands for example because i don't need that blue near as much because i don't have blue blue in the mana cost but i have a lot of green green and black black so i have a lot of the black green cycles but i don't have a lot of the blue black for example so yeah i i love that you pointed that out because i think subconsciously i was doing that but a people a lot of people just look at your mana requirements and then fix your mana from there don't don't put every land cycle in that you need to just because you think you have to yeah and when we look at the top land cycles on edh rec there are different sections where we can look at the most popular uh cards of a given type, like the most popular artifacts, the most popular enchantments. And then you can also look at the most popular lands divided by utility lands and by color fixing lands. And when we look over the order of popularity on the color fixing lands page, we get some results that I think are really, really telling. The most popular lands, all 10 of these appear near the very, very top uh, of EDHREC. All 10 of the shock lands appear on this page uh, when we're looking at the top color fixing lands of the past two years. Like people love their shocks. These are really, really excellent. Behind that are the tri lands. All 10 of those appear also on the top land, uh, the color fixing lands of the page. Then there's also the check lands, which definitely means that people prefer these a lot more than I do, which is a good thing to see. I think that maybe I need to do a bit more of my homework on these. Behind those, we've got the bounce lands that we mentioned, the Azorius chanceries of the world, things like that. The ones that enter the battlefield tapped and give you your land back, those Eight of those appear on these top color fixing lands on the page. And I'm really personally happy to see that. I think that these are really, really great hidden gems with a lot of cool utility. 
And then finally on this page, we also see two of the five cycle of the Battle for Zendikar dual lands appear on this page as well. Remember that those enter the battlefield uh, tapped unless you control two basic lands. And those also have two basic types. So I think that what we're seeing on this page, in other words, is that people are really savvy when it comes to the color fixing that they need. They're playing the stuff that they need. And these are, I think, a good set of lands to be considered aspirational. If these are the types of lands that you're aiming for when you start tuning up your mana base, I think that this is going to serve you extremely well. Yeah, one thing I would add here, um, and it's it, it kind of goes back to the discussion we had about Scrylands, um, you know, some lands are almost always good, but a lot of times it depends on your play style and your deck brewing style as well, and what one person might find really useful or one first person might find to be a problem with the land, somebody else might not find to be a problem or might not find to be useful, depending on what they're doing in their particular deck. You know, Joey talked about using bounce lands offensively to like bounce a bajuka bog or something or, or, or bounce <laughs> yeah. whatever mystic sanctuary but if you're not running those that bounce land becomes way less useful as a as an offensive tool so a lot of the stuff depends on your own deck and make sure you kind of take that into consideration and and don't discount something just because one of us didn't like it it might well work with the way you brew and the way you build mm-hmm yeah, and I think just the point of this episode is to point out, you know, mana fixing in general is important, but it shouldn't be your absolute priority. You know, it it's one of those things you can upgrade over time. If you need to start yeah. out just playing some of those guild gates, that's fine because there's nothing less exciting than having a big, powerful three-color spell in your hand, and there's nothing more exciting than, than getting to cast it. So make sure you're fixing your mana, and then if it's not perfect, that's fine. You You can increase the quality of your mana base over time just make sure you're not going out of your way to just blow the bank and then you have nothing left over in your budget to not get any awesome spells to cast with. Yeah, it's all about casting those big spells. I, I know how much you love those big, 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 big spells there, Matt. <laughs> I, I'm getting there. It's growing on me. <laughs> well, with that, this is a lot of fun to go over those, but I, I think that we're going to call this particular episode to a close. Uh, I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me and talking about all of these cool color-fixing lands. But if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? You can find me on the Twitter at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana. You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach and hear me on my other podcast a couple times a week, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. You can find the cast at EDH RecCast on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you have a question, a keen insight to EDH Rec's data, or maybe a challenge the stats pick that you think that we should know about, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Listeners, let us know your favorite color-fixing lands. We'd love to hear about the lands that you've had really good fortune with, especially if they're budget or if they're not. What are the types of lands that you like to fill out your mana bases with? It's a ton of fun, and it's really important to share that information to see how we can all get the mana that we need to cast those really awesome spells. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Do you guys ever do that for magic cards? Like, in my head, for some reason, like, the Dryad of Elysian Grove, for example, I think that's, like, a 2-2, but it's actually a 2-4. Or Insurrection is an 8-mana spell. I always think it's 9-mana. Balthor the the Defiled, I just got that from my Conrad deck. I think he's a 5-mana card. He is 4-mana, but I I, I will always think that he is a 5-mana card. Like, that is where I have placed him. And I can't unthink that, despite looking at the evidence right in front of my eyes. And Sovereigns Sovereigns of Lost Alara have flying. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Got him.